0: Join me in our responsive welcome. No matter who you are, or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, or Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. On our first Sunday uh, services, which are our communion services, we do not offer Children's Church. We intentionally keep this a space that is intergenerational, so that we might learn and grow and worship together people of all ages. And so this morning, our story for all ages comes to us in the form of a book called What is God Like? This was written by Rachel Held Evans and Matthew Paul Turner. The pictures will be on the screen as well. I know that it's difficult to see just... uh, the book that I will be holding, but if you'd like to move closer so that you can see the pictures as I'm reading them from here, you're certainly welcome to do that. What is God like? That's a very big question, one that people from places all around the world have wondered about since the beginning of time. And while nobody has seen all of God, because God is too far too big for any of us to fully see, we can know what God is like. God is like an eagle, sharp-eyed and swift, with wings so wide you can play under their shadows. God is like a river, constant and life-giving. When you grow near God, you will sprout up as strong as a tree. God is like the stars, forever present and bright. Even when they feel far away, you can always look up and see them winking at you. God is like a shepherd, brave and good, a protector who loves her sheep so much that she watches over all of them and knows each of their names by heart. God is like a fort, strong and secure, with walls that are mighty and safe. Inside, there are many hidden places to hold you when you're scared or need a quiet place to rest. God is like a gardener, patient and nurturing. God plants, waters, weeds, and fertilizes the earth until every good thing on it seeks the nourishing sun and grows. God is like the flame of a candle, warm and inviting. With God close by, you can look to the light and see through the darkest of nights. God is like the wind, passionate and full of mystery. God is both here and mysteriously also over there. God is everywhere, swirling through the world, whistling across mountain ranges, rustling through trees and pressing against your cheeks on a breezy day. And because we know what God is like, we know that God is kind, God is forgiving, God is slow to get angry, God is quick to be glad, God is happy when you tell the truth and sad when things are unfair. She is your protector, he is trustworthy, they are friends when you feel alone. God hopes, God perseveres. What is God like? That's a very big question, one that people from places all around the world throughout time have answered in many different ways. Keep searching, keep wondering, keep learning about God. But whenever you aren't sure, what God is like. Think about what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel brave, and what makes you feel loved. That is what God is like." Words of wisdom for us this morning. We are turning in our Bible reading to Another time when people asked what God is like. This comes to us from the 20th chapter of Luke. We're reading beginning at verse 27 and stopping at 38. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, imagine there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second, then the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife will the woman be? For seven men had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong in this age are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. So God is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. And then some of the scribes who were listening answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. May this also be words of wisdom for us today. In the Middle Ages, folks became very interested in the nature of the spiritual realm, and especially of angels. They would ponder questions like whether angels could take bodily form, or if they were purely spiritual, could they interact with the material world? And so one thought experiment that they would ponder was how many angels fit on the head of a pen, Now, if you've heard that question asked today, it's usually asked in the context of pointing out a silliness in a line of reasoning, right? It's a way of accusing people of paying attention to the wrong things. And that's what's happening in this exchange between the Sadducees and Jesus. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and so they're presenting Jesus with what seems like an impossible scenario. Only this time, they aren't mockingly asking him how many angels fit on the head of a pin, they're asking a question about the resurrection. If a woman was married multiple times in life, who would she be married to in death? It is a logical and well-reasoned and slightly mean-spirited question. You know those because you've probably encountered them in your own lives, maybe around the dinner table where people start discussing important issues and then they soon find they're just arguing for the sake of arguing. Or sometimes it happens when a group is trying to solve a problem and then someone keeps pointing out all the problems to all the possible solutions and the next thing you know nothing's happened and everyone is miserable. What's interesting in the exchange then isn't that this happens, or that some religious folks tried to trick Jesus with a theological question, that happens. What's interesting is that Jesus answers. He doesn't just call them hypocrites and move on, as he sometimes did when he encountered these kinds of questions. He doesn't respond with a parable or answer a question with a question, which are other ways that he taught. He takes the time to teach, even knowing in that moment that their question was less about curiosity and more about superiority. It's something that I think we can appreciate about this exchange as a community that values questions and questioning. Questions can bring us closer to God which is not to say that we have to entertain every question that comes our way. There is some value to knowing when someone is serious and when they just want to argue. But sometimes we're quick to dismiss questions as irrelevant when they actually have a deeper meaning behind them. And so while the Sadducees' question might be disingenuous, The way that Jesus answers it reminds us that curiosity itself is welcome. As Albert Einstein would once say much later, curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity and of life. Never lose a holy curiosity. And there is plenty of room for holy curiosity when we're talking about resurrection and life and death. We ask these questions at different points throughout our lives like, do animals go to heaven? Are angels real? Would we look like ourselves in heaven? Is there a resurrection or a heaven? And as much as those questions might sound like questions of the head, of questions of logic and reason, they are also questions of the soul. And questions of the soul deserve soul-filled answers, which is what Jesus gives. Not only does Jesus promise that there is a resurrection in this exchange, but he changes the entire terms of the promise. He centers this hypothetical woman and not her relationships with her seven hypothetical questions. In effect, he's saying that her place in heaven doesn't depend on the status of her husbands or how many children she had, which is how her place in the world was measured. Her place is given to her, he says, because she herself is worthy of a place in that age. Jesus shifts this in such a way that it centers the relationship between God and each of us. And that relationship is what we can center as well. The mistake that the Sadducees make is that they create a boundary around knowledge. For them, it becomes only about what they can reason their way to but some experiences defy reason. Madeline Lingle, who you may better know as the author of A Wrinkle in Time, writes in her book, Bright Evening Star, a story of a time when she was young, and this is how she tells it. One day I was in the bathroom, standing at the basin, washing my hands, and then Jesus was there in the bathroom with me, telling me without words that it was all right, that there was work for me to do. I didn't question his presence, although it seemed very strange and embarrassing that he would approach me in the bathroom because I was a private and prudish child. All I wondered was why he couldn't come to me in church or when I was saying my prayers or even in the park. Somewhere more appropriate, I certainly never told anybody, but I also never forgot." Or there's this one, which comes from Dr. Barbara Holmes, and it was recently shared in Richard Rohr's email devotional, which I know that some of you also get. Holmes writes about an encounter with her Aunt Grace, who had died some time before. She describes a sensation of music and a feeling of floating, and then she says, I was happy to the point of bursting. And to top off this sense of euphoria, my beloved Aunt Grace was there. I didn't see her, but I knew she was nearby. And she goes on to say, you see, most families would have poo-pooed my account of flying and of visitations from dead relatives, but my family has roots in the Gola culture of South Carolina and on the Maryland Eastern Shore mystics. And so they share a belief. Everyone knows that the dead come back. They come back and forth to offer warnings, to bring messages. And I was just quizzed by the elders. When I couldn't come up with any deep wisdom or any important message from the other side, one aunt rather pointedly said, let us know if she comes again. I don't really know how to make sense of these experiences. Even as I read them and hear them from others, they defy reason. And because they defy reason, we devalue them. But I wonder, how many opportunities do we miss because we are quick to chalk up our experiences to a trick of the light or wishful thinking? It's not to say that we shouldn't bring logic to bear on something or to check something with someone in safe community. Those are certainly valuable ways of knowing as well. It is simply to say that we should hold the knowledge of our minds alongside the knowledge of our hearts. We should hold the knowledge of our minds alongside the relationship that we have with God. Part of the life of faith is making room for the unknown. It is being willing to hold on to wonder and to the possibility that we don't yet know everything. As the Apostle Paul says, we see in a mirror but dimly. The experiences of God that we have, that each of us have, whether they are amazing, unbelievable, mystical encounters like the ones that I have shared uh, from the authors who wrote them. Or whether they are quieter, still moments, a wave of peace that washes over us in a time of trouble, a sense of presence that we can't quite put our finger on. All of those moments are gifts to treasure. And so we do not have to wrestle our way out of them. We can simply let them be. I think this is especially important when we are in a time of trial, as the Bible sometimes calls our difficult times. Those times of hardship or struggle are the times when our minds are most likely to run away with us. Those are the times when we start questioning ourselves and everything we believe, and we might even enter what the mystics call a long, dark night of the soul, where God seems far away and faith seems ridiculous, and Scripture seems like more of a challenge than a comfort. In those times, I think the things that can provide grounding isn't a well-reasoned theological treatise where we answer all of the mysteries of life. In those times, what provides grounding for us is the memory of the times that God showed up with the trust that God will show up again. Treasure the moments when you experience them, and do not be too quick to wrestle your way out of them. May this be the way for each of us.